Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. I'm really excited to be back with you, digging into the book of Malachi. I've enjoyed this study so much, and uh, learning about how God has shown himself um, to be just full of mercy, compassion, his faithfulness, his justice. Throughout our study, Nancy Guthrie has given us a framework to understand the message of the Old Testament prophets. We've looked at God's message of grace and hope, and we've seen Jesus in each book that we've studied. In Jonah, we've seen the compassion of Jesus, who ran toward those under judgment rather than away from them. In Hosea, he's our faithful bridegroom. In Micah, we see the humble justice and mercy of Jesus' life and death. In Isaiah, He's the divine king, suffering servant, and coming conqueror. In Habakkuk, we see the way sinful, faithless people are credited the righteousness needed to live by faith. And in Jeremiah, Jesus fulfills God's promise of a new covenant that will implant in us a heart that wants to obey. In Daniel, we see the glorious Son of Man who has received from the Ancient of Days a kingdom that will never oppress and will never pass away. In Ezekiel, we saw the promised presence of Jesus with us, never to leave us in a new eternal city. In Malachi, we hear God's final words to his people for over 400 years. I would like us to take a closer look at where the Israelites were spiritually, where we are spiritually, and how we can wait on the Lord's return with hope and confidence. So let's set the stage a little bit for the context of this book of Malachi. In our study of the prophets, we've seen God speak from Jonah to Jeremiah in that pre-exile period before they were conquered by those foreign powers. Then in Daniel and Ezekiel, we saw how God communicated with his people while they were in exile. Now in Malachi, he communicates with them post-exile, probably a hundred years after they return to the land. Second Chronicles 36, 23 tells us that a small remnant of Israelites returned to Jerusalem. The temple and the walls of the city had been rebuilt. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries of Malachi. We can read their books in the Old Testament also. Now, although these people were happy to be back in the land... They were saddened. Reality had not held up to their expectations. They were waiting for God's promises to be realized. Now, I've spent a lot of time in airports all around the world. They can be fancy and sleek, new and shiny, or dilapidated, crowded, hot, and a little bit smelly. But all airports have two things in common. They have two distinct areas, a place for departures and a place for arrivals. Now, there was a day long ago, young people, that loved ones could actually escort their traveler all the way to the gate and wait together with them for that plane to depart. It was very different than dropping off your traveler 
at the curb, trying to be efficient, not anger the other drivers in that throng of traffic, and hoping that you don't forget to tell them something important. In the departure area, you could just sit and talk, ensuring that all of the important words in your heart had been spoken, not knowing when you might see them again. It was so sweet to treasure those final parting words. In Malachi, we see God leaving his people with some caring and encouraging words. Now, the Israelites were in a bad place spiritually. Although God had fulfilled his promise to bring them back into the land, it just wasn't what they had imagined. Instead of them being a powerful, independent state, they were still ruled by Persia. They were weak and unable to defend themselves from possible attacks. Instead of prosperity and plenty, they were poor and lacking. Think of all those amazing promises that we've heard about from the other prophets, the glorious future that he revealed to them. This was not it. The temple was not as majestic as the old one. They were surrounded by economic distress, drought, crop failure, pestilence. Sound familiar? Under Persian rule, they did have religious freedom, but they had a governor, not a king, descended from David. They were in spiritual desolation. That glorious temple that we saw in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, where it had just even living waters flowing out of it, that hadn't been realized. And they were simply going through the motions of life and of worship. They were disillusioned. God was waiting for them to love and obey him. He had fulfilled his promise to return them from exile, but they were unsatisfied because of their unmet expectations and their circumstances. They thought, if things are like this, does God really love us? They forgot who God was, leading them to neglect him, and thus it resulted in them living corrupt and unfulfilled lives. First, they doubted God's love. Now, it's normal to have times in our lives where we question God, and we think, God, where are you? How could you let this happen? But as we take our laments to God, he helps us to see him clearly, even in the midst of pain and suffering. However, in their doubt, the Israelites turned away from God. They had forgotten who he was, his character, his attributes, and it led them to cynicism and hard hearts. Next, they were not worshiping God and honoring him, both with their wealth and their words. Worship is when you give something its proper worth. The Israelites were undervaluing God for who he was and for all of his provision for them. They were demanding justice from God on their enemies, but they were blind to how their own injustices were ripping holes in their community. They were exploiting the weak and the vulnerable, they were looking out for themselves. They were living unrighteously, not giving God what was due him. They divorced their wives and married those who did not worship him. They trusted in themselves and their own resources and not in him. But God is so good. God spoke some final words to his people before those upcoming years of silence. Although there would be no new revelation from God over those next 400 years, 
God left his people with all of the words of the Old Testament. This included the law and the prophets, the histories, songs, poems, laments. It reflects all that he is and what the story of man's relationship with God would look like. They have a glimmer of an idea of what is to come. Instead of leaving them distraught, God told them several things. First, in Malachi 1-2, we see God says, I have loved you. Now, this is an amazing declaration. The way it's used here, it means that his love is done, is past and finished, but it's also ongoing and has even future ramifications. It's, it's earth-shattering. God has loved, is loving, and will always love his people. Now, this is the greatest intimacy that we could ever know. In our lives, people will disappoint us with their love, but God will never disappoint us with his love. Tim Keller describes God's love like this. The only love that won't disappoint you is one that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live. It is something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. Next, after this amazing insight, he could have stopped there, and that would have been really wonderful, just to sit and think and rest in the fact that the eternal creator of the world loves us, has loved us, will always love us. Pretty amazing, but he kept going. Next, God told the Israelites, you will be purified. God promises to send two messengers, one to prepare the way, and the second messenger is the messenger of the covenant, the Savior. He will show up, and he will purify them. God tells them, you cannot purify yourself. He's shown that over and over. But I will provide a way for you to be cleansed and that will be the Savior to come. Next, he tells them that he never changes. They can count on him no matter what. Even in the silence, he is sure, constant, and steady. No matter what happens in the waiting, he will not waver or falter. And lastly, God assures them that on the day of judgment, he will gather up those who love and trust him, and they will be spared. They will be his treasured possessions. Now, this always makes me think of my great aunts and their fine china figurines. Did y'all have great aunts with little cute china figurines? Um, they had this elegant glass china cabinet, and inside, the protected figurines could be shown to visitors without any fear of damage. They were beautifully crafted, carefully displayed, dusted, guarded, things that bring joy and beauty to the world, treasured possessions. Because of his delight and the covering that he has provided, his people will be protected when that judgment comes. What amazing words that he left them with. So full of hope, the things that they needed to hear. They're loved. He's provided a way for them to be with him. He'll never change. He will draw them to him. 
So let's look at what happened next historically. The Israelites continued to be ruled by Persia, but while some lived in Jerusalem, others were scattered in other lands. The book of Esther shows how their fortunes could change as quickly as the world's esteem changes. The Persians were then displaced by Alexander the Great, and the next period spread Greek culture and language throughout the land. There was religious tolerance during this Hellenistic period. The next rulers were from the Egyptian Ptolemaic Empire. At this time, there was a sizable Jewish community in Egypt, and especially in Alexandria. This is when the Greek Septuagint was written, that first translation from Hebrew into Greek of the Old Testament. After that, the Seleucid Empire, or Syria, took over and religion was strictly regulated. Persecution for worshiping God was fierce. And eventually, because of this persecution, the Jews revolted and restored temple worship. All the rulers of this Maccabean period were from the same family of priests, but unfortunately, they became more dictatorial, immoral, corrupt, and even pagan. Over time, there was so much eternal, internal strife that they asked the Roman general Pompey to come and restore order. Instead, Pompey came in and entered the temple, even the most holy place, and it infuriated the Israelites. It was the utmost defilement and disrespect of both the people and their holy God. As the Romans continued to rule over the land of Israel, there was a seething hatred of the Romans and their disdain for God and his people. Throughout this time, even though they didn't directly hear from God, a faithful remnant of the people of God read, remembered, and told others his truth. So everything that we see in the New Testament reminds us of God's infinite love, his faithfulness, and his consistency. It's so encouraging me, to me to know that no matter how the Israelites felt during this time of waiting, God was faithful. Now, some of God's people had a longing for the Savior. They wanted him to come and set things right, bringing healing and wholeness to them. But some wanted God to come and free them from the rule of the Romans, and that was their most important motivation to see this ruler come. In the Gospels, we see Jesus, this messenger of the covenant, the word himself made flesh. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This was his first coming. Jesus came to fulfill everything that God had said would happen. He was faithful. He did what he said he would do. Jesus would be the unblemished lamb whose death would atone for our sins, the refiner who purifies us. He took away our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. We can look back from our perspective and see how God was faithful to provide for his people. He left his Holy Spirit with us to guide us into all truth. And he has promised to return and collect his people to him in a magnificent new eternal city. We have not yet seen it, but we choose to believe because of God's faithfulness. But what about us? Do we have some things in common with the disillusioned Israelites? 
feeling frustrated that God has not fixed all of their problems? I think we do find ourselves in this similar situation to the Israelites. We have this underlying feeling that things are just not right yet. We see the world around us, we see it's broken. It's not quite, quite the way that we want it to be. C.S. Lewis reminds us that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. How true is that? We were made in the image of God, and we function best where he is. This world is broken, full of loss and pain. We are waiting with great expectancy for his next coming, but there's this great tension as we wait. We don't really feel at home here. Things aren't right. Although we aren't exactly exiles, we are aliens and strangers. This place isn't our true home. We're sometimes disillusioned, frustrated, weary, confused by the world and our circumstances. Even though we know him and we believe his words, we get distracted, sidetracked, and we even forget his faithfulness to us. Just like the Israelites, we can doubt God's love, fail to worship him, become bitter over loss, suffering, or our circumstances, and we can fall into worldliness. We are in a spiritual battle. The powers and principalities of this world, they stir up doubt, lies, and strife that keep our families and our communities enslaved to sin and to shame. Pornography, abortion, divorce, the LBGTQ campaign, they're all symptoms of lost people looking for satisfaction and purpose in this world. I've experienced this clash of worldviews even within my own family. I shared this picture with you the last time that I talked. One of the big difficulties in my life that I'm trying to wait faithfully for God in is for my daughter, Sarah. That's her on the far right. After her third year of college, she told us that she identified as a male and she embraced an, a transgender identity. This threw our family into turmoil. Isaac has four children. He doesn't want them to be influenced by this worldliness. So we haven't all been together since his wedding. This is the last picture I have of my family together. And I'm very thankful for this picture because I'm not sure when we will all be together again. It hurts my heart, makes me sad. Many people have told me about their own encounters with this particular issue, and it is heartbreaking to see loved ones far from God's plan. But there are many other traps that people can fall into in this life. A love of money, desire for power, hatred, anger, addiction, apathy. We all have something in our lives that needs healing. We are in a spiritual battle. The powers and the principalities of this world want us to be disillusioned. They want us to be confused and frustrated. So how can we live then in this broken world with our broken dreams, broken relationships, and our broken hearts? When reality doesn't meet up to our expectations, when people have let us down, when we don't value God for who he is, and when it seems that injustice reigns, we need to remember 
the glimpse of hope that God shares with us. Jesus will return and make things straight for eternity. We can't see our way out. We can't see a resolution. We are waiting, waiting for God to make things right. Joni Erickson Tata says, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. We have to believe this is true. Because God is faithful, he has left us with his word and with his Holy Spirit so that we can know how to know him, understand the world around us, understand ourselves, and to help us to live full, abundant lives while helping others to be reconciled to him. The first thing we need to do as we struggle to say, okay, God, what does it look like in this difficulty? We need to remember who he is. His word reveals all of the amazing attributes that make up his character and his quality. We need to go to the word. We need to lean into it. We need to learn it. We need to love it. As he says in Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. I am loving you. I will always love you. His all-powerful, unending love, we need to believe it even when we don't feel it. And we need to remind each other We need to be reminding each other of these truths that we hold so closely to our hearts. This is one of the most helpful things that we can have when we struggle. A sister coming alongside, reminding us of God's truth. It's okay to feel lost, to feel weary, to feel alone. When the cares and concerns of this world wear us down, we can ask God, why are things like this? When will you return? and deliver us from this difficulty. We need to just sit in that difficulty, relying on what we know to be true. He who has known us before we were even born loves us and will love us. He is with us in our difficulty. He who is faithful to provide a way of justification for mankind will also sanctify and then one day glorify us. Just like Daniel, and his companions in Babylon, we can be in scary, uncomfortable seasons of life, but we can emerge faithful. The waiting can be hard, but we can support each other in the darkness. Next thing we need to do, we need to remember who we are. In Romans, we learn that although we were alienated from God, now we are his children. Once we were slaves to sin, now we are slaves of righteousness. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can ever separate us from his love. Absolutely. That's astonishing. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And when he changes us, he doesn't give us the changes that we want. He gives us the changes that we need. He gives us a heart that's willing and able to trust him. He releases us from our sins and our fear. He was born to reign in us forever. And now that we are joint heirs with Christ, we have purpose. We don't sit and fret away our days just kind of hoping for his return. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
We are his ambassadors here, extending his mercy to all people so that they also may see his healing, love, and comfort, so that they too can stand before him, purified by the refiner's fire on the coming day of judgment. We can model our lives and habits after the humble and compassionate life of Jesus. Just as he sought after God's wisdom and strength, we can seek him too. We value what he valued. We love how he loved, died to ourselves, and we give God our best, whatever that looks like, just because he's worth it. Lastly, we do look forward to a second coming when all things will be set right. As we enjoy the goodness of who he is right now, right here, we trust that he will come again and we will experience his love and faithfulness in a whole new way. Now, at the airport, besides the departures area, there's the arrivals area. And this is my favorite place. I love to go to Austin to the airport and sit at the international arrivals area. It's great because I like to go to sit early and just watch all the people. So people start coming in about an hour before the flight, and you kind of get to be this little group of friends because you're, you're, you're all kind of wondering, who are, who, who are they coming to pick up and what is it going to be like? Now, at this uh, arrival area, when the plane lands, the passengers have to collect their baggage and go through customs before they're allowed to emerge to the arrival area. And there are some doors that open, but you can't see anyone until they actually step out of the, the doorway. So it can take a while, and you never know if that next person out will be your loved one. So it's so much fun to watch everybody who's waiting. They can barely hold in their excitement. Little kids kind of shudder around on jittery feet, and there's guys trying to look cool as they're waiting with flowers or balloons. Families wait with signs, and they laugh, and they strain to see if they can spot their loved ones. Unlike the departure lounge, the arrivals area is full of joyful anticipation. When their traveler finally pops out, most people run to them, and they cling to them and hug them, and the joy that's on their faces is just amazing. This is how we should look forward to the return of Jesus. All of the things we've heard about in the prophets, the new heaven and the new earth, the amazing temple city, God's everlasting light, love, and peace, these are the things that we look for with expectation. It's okay to recognize that sometimes we will hurt as we wait. Our sore souls desire peace, justice, and perfection. We can set our hearts and minds on him, his truth, and his promises that we know will one day be fulfilled. We long for that day when things are set right because it will be far beyond anything we have hoped or imagined when we are get able to enjoy him forever. Our hope is in the Lord of hosts. God is faithful to provide all we need for contentment, healing, everlasting joy, and we can have confidence that it will happen on that great day when he returns and we will join him forever. Come now, long-awaited Jesus. We can't wait. Let's pray. Awesome God of heaven, thank you for your love and faithfulness. We are awed and humbled by your majesty. We long for the day when all things will be made right and we will get to be with you, worshiping forever.
Help us to know you more, to walk with you more closely, to share that confidence and trust with those around us. You are all we need. May we encourage one another when our faith fades. May we look to you, not our circumstances, for our joy and satisfaction. Help us to remember your vast love, the hope we have in you, and how you never change. We love you and we choose to believe your words that are true. We praise you with all that we are and all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name.